Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, is it time to regulate big tech? And Richard, we've had a spate of tech controversies over the past few weeks. Let's start with the one that has the most immediate policy relevance, by which I mean the one that is already seeing the Justice Department hauling one of these tech companies into court. So the DOJ this week bringing an antitrust suit against Google, arguing that Google is using its ad revenue to pay for the companies that make cell phones or web browsers to make them their default search engine. And the argument here is that this functions as a kind of feedback loop wherein Google is only going to get fatter and eat up more of the market. Based on what we've seen here, does this strike you as appropriate grounds for an antitrust suit? I'm very dubious on this particular point. There are all sorts of people, small and large, who tried to pay for exclusives. And if you think of it this way, if they had a really viable monopoly, they would not have to purchase loyalty. They would simply show up on the door and say, you have to get on the air. There's nobody else who can survive for you. Uh, So you could take ours and we're not going to pay you a dime. Uh, this kind of practice takes place in lots of markets. When the Qualcomm case was brought by the FCC, again, one of the challenges to it was that, well, the reason why we know that you have a huge market domination is because you pay people to use your chips in their particular situation, to which the answer is the reason we have to pay them is because the competition is so strong. And what we do is by paying them a lump sum at the front end, Uh, We guarantee them that we're going to give them pretty reliable service throughout because we have to be able to earn that back through multiple chips. So I think in and of itself, it's a relatively innocuous practice. And let me sort of give a kind of a general approach to all of these things. One of the hardest things is you're dealing here is with the theory of market dominance. You are not dealing here with a theory of cartels. Cartels are easy to understand within the framework of an antitrust situation because what happened is a bunch of producers get together. All of them agree to cut their output or to divide their territories, and amongst themselves, if this is stable, each of them make more money by selling less than they did by selling more, and consumers manage to take a double hit. Some of them are forced out of the market, and others have to pay a kind of higher prices. Uh, The market dominance stuff is just much more difficult to try to figure out exactly what's going wrong. And in these particular cases, the approach that I tend to take is there's a strong presumption that if any company, large or small, uses a given practice, then that practice should not be illegal when it's used by a large company in the same way that small companies use it. Uh, We know, in effect, if it's a small company, it's not a way to secure market dominance, not a way to secure monopolization. And so we know it has some efficiency advantage. Then when you go to the large companies, the efficiency advantages, whatever they are and however defined, don't disappear. And so what you have to do is saying that given those are already on the table, How is it that this particular practice also enhances monopolization? Um, I suppose that you could think of some explanation for it, uh, but if you don't pose the question, you will never get the answer. And in these particular situations, they haven't posed the answer. Uh, So what the government hasn't done is take that second step and explain why it is when a big guy uses a certain practice, it's much more insidious than when a small guy uses it. So uh, there are no absolutes in antitrust law, uh, but it seems to me that the presumption for this particular reason ought to be set against the Justice Department in this particular case. 
The other big debate of late has been how tech companies, especially the social media companies, monitor and restrict content. So we had a flashpoint in this debate last week with the New York Post story about the Hunter Biden allegations. Twitter prevented people from sharing that story for a while, even locked some accounts, including that of the White House press secretary, of people who were trying to share it. Their rationale at the time was that they had a policy against allowing hacked information on the platform. They subsequently backed off on, on most of that. And this is of a piece with a way some of these platforms have tried to moderate or place disclaimers on the president's posts. And there is a sense, Richard, especially amongst conservatives, that these platforms are putting a thumb on the scale, that they are much more aggressive about policing content that comes from right-of-center sources than from left-of-center ones. And this has reignited a conversation about whether the government should step in to start imposing rules on how and when or whether these companies can moderate content. Uh, What's your view on the proper role for government there? Very difficult, but let's start at the beginning. Uh, This is not a problem with respect to monopoly. Uh, Whatever you think about Twitter, it doesn't have a monopoly in any market with respect to social communications, and yet is engaged in practices that I frankly regard as reprehensible uh, by first making forced rationales as to why they keep things off, and then in effect slowly loosening this stuff using disclosures which they do not make on the other side. They have had all sorts of stuff quite inflammatory from people on the left, and they won't take something relatively innocuous on the right. Well, that's bias. Well, how do we know it? Well, one of the things that you have to be, in my judgment, if you want to be a media company, is to exercise that you're a platform guy. Platform guys are like moderators in presidential debates. If they take sides on one or the other, then it turns out that they're not a moderator. It becomes two against one. So if you're running one of these companies, the first rule that you do is you make sure that your CEO never but never makes any political contributions to any political party for any other reason. And that, of course, is something which Jack Dorsey at Twitter is is not known to do. It's also the case that when you do these things, you have to be extremely careful about the way in which you sort of run your internal politics. Uh, So Google, for example, remembered when the whole issue of gender discrimination in programming, uh, they got this man named James Damore, and he sort of indicated where the biases came in, and he was promptly fired under these circumstances. So what you know is the where Google stands on other kinds of issues because of its internal discipline, it's not so difficult to figure out where they're going to stand on these kinds of issues as well. And sure enough, if you start looking for some things, uh, and I've done it several times, and you want to get the unadorned version, and it turns out to come from a conservative source, what you'll do is your first link is you'll find it wrapped in some other program where all the criticisms of that particular guy uh, turn out to be stated as well. And, you know, this cannot just be chance. So there clearly are algorithms and algorithms. There's no neutrality as far as I can see. Uh, But this is a problem that would take place even if Google had only 10% of the market as opposed to 90% of the market. And what's the solution to this? Well, you want to treat them as having common carrier obligations. It's a nice way to do it, meaning you have to take all comers. Uh, But that's also wrong. So, for example, if you take the analogy to a railroad, you have to take all comers. Somebody comes on the train brandishing a knife. It turns out that you're allowed to throw them off because the standard is presumptively you take all customers, but you actually have the right to throw off people who pose a threat to everybody else. Well, the same thing is going to be true when you start getting to these networks. It's a presumption that you take everybody on, but if there's somebody there who's engaged in deliberate you know, malice and, and vicious falsehoods about other individuals, 
uh, is there a duty to take it off? And this is the community, this you know, Community Information Act and so forth, where all of this stuff is, oh, if you want to do this, um, we're going to give you an immunity if you put it on there. Uh, and you can only get the guy who wrote it. But some of these posts are put up by fake sites. You can't get to them. And so there are lots of people who are saying we really have to go under the Community Decency Act. That's what I call Section 230. you got to go after these particular fellows. And that then gives rise to a huge battle because you could be massively abusive by going after them. And you could be uh, regrettably neglectful by ignoring them. And the errors are so large in both directions that it becomes extremely difficult to figure out a legitimate legislative program uh, that gets errors on both sides and leaves spirited debates on the other. I had already written many times on the Hoover side uh, that I thought the effort when you had one of Donald Trump's uh, posts, which are almost always, shall we say, indiscreet and inflammatory, to warn people that they're indiscreet and inflammatory and that the drive-away customs is uh, silly, it's dangerous, and also, in this case, it's all redundant. And what you want to do is to follow the old maxim off the system, which is the uh, best remedy against speech, which is inflammatory, robust, hard, hitting, and so forth, is counter-speech. It's not suppression. And that was the model which, for example, when uh, Justice Brennan wrote his decision in 1964 in New York Times against Sullivan, and he started to talk about caustic speech and so forth. His argument was, I'm not going to allow you a defamation action except in the extreme cases of knowing and deliberate falsehood, usually requiring in practice constant repetition. And his attitude was, you don't like it, well, you respond in kind. And one of the things that happens here is you just don't see that taking place in the way in which one ought to think it's going on. So I think the correct answer at this present, and I don't like it, but I can't think of anything better, is to simply keep the pressure on relentlessly whenever you see this kind of bias in the hopes that these guys will reform and also to try to find, as I have tried to find, other ways to get onto the net. Um, there's a company called DuckDuckGo, and it turns out on my new computer, I can switch with a flick of the switch from Google uh, to DuckDuckGo. And, you know, whenever it comes out to be a kind of a political search, I always do that kind of a switch now because, frankly, the still the best remedy is uh, switching, it's essentially new entry rather than force. And what happens is you want to design every computer in a way that they have built in at the front end multiple websites or easy ways to download them so that people can switch away from one to another. Uh, switching out is so much more effective than heavy-handed regulation that it really ought to be systematically encouraged. Let me toggle back to the Google suit for a moment. And, and for that matter, the other suits that may be coming or that policymakers are clamoring for. It's been about 20 years since the Microsoft antitrust case. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a decent chance that a significant chunk of our audience doesn't remember it with any precision. Uh, to what extent are there lessons from that case that should affect how we think about the Google case now and, and any others that may be coming down the pike? Oh, there's so many lessons. I mean, you know, it was a case in which many people were involved. I had a kind of a marginal role, although at the time I actually then worked for Microsoft on some unrelated projects, so I had some sympathy for their position. One of the great ironies is that Robert Bork actually wrote briefs on the other side of the case against Microsoft, even though he's generally thought to be the general free market guy. It's hard to figure out what mistakes were the biggest, but let's start with one. Bill Gates is no deep thinker. Uh, at least he wasn't a deep thinker at the time when it came to these lawsuits. And so what you were doing here is you were making an argument of market dominance, which is designed to impose some kind of common carrier 
obligation that is to hook up all sorts of people. And he says, uh, this lawsuit is just the same as Coke saying that it wants to put its bottles in a Pepsi truck. Um, and so what he confuses is a monopoly market, which is a platform economy, where there's no market competitive equilibrium, with a market in which competitive equilibrium are not only possible, but happen every day. And the moment you start talking like that, you just bring an enormous amount of detention to yourself, because everybody who knows the first thing about antitrust knows that this analogy is not an end. And so what happens is Gates managed to cause himself huge amounts of difficulty. And it was only when Brad Smith, I think is now the president of that operation, or certainly had, had a very big role in it for a long time, comes as a general counsel and he starts basically making more traditional antitrust remedies. Then you start going and you look at the lawsuit. And the degree of dominance was that everybody says that you want to break this company up, which is going to be a lesson with respect to Google. The question is, well, how do you break it up into two? And one of the things you could do is you could start saying, oh, well, we break up the operating system into two separate operating systems, which is going to be a genuine nightmare. There are going to be all sorts of patent complications associated with it. And in fact, uh, the two websites are going to have to be able to communicate together in order to make sure that information flows fully from one to another. In a hub-and-spoke economy, it's not very efficient to have a hub which is split in the middle. And so if you broke them up, you would immediately get integration by contract, which would make it very difficult. You can spin off the peripherals and say, oh, those are going to be a separate company, but then they're going to have to hook up with the center, and that's going to create all sorts of interconnection difficulties of exact sort that we had with the telephone industry shortly thereafter. When they started to have these dominant companies, who had to take on whom was a terrible issue on which they litigated for many, many years until the way in which you solve the interconnection problem is uh, you merge two companies together on different sides of the market. So it turns out that SBC, Southwestern Bell at the time, uh, took over AT&T. And uh, what happened is that Bell Atlantic uh, took over GTE and you had Verizon and they reconstituted that. So uh, these remedies really don't work very well. So then what you do is you say, okay, there is a violation and, you know, they found it. It was a dominant company. They said they'd used various kinds of improper techniques. There was a huge battle over that issue because Microsoft presented some very compelling evidence to the effect that it was A, easy to download Netscape, and B, it had an inferior design uh, because uh, with Netscape, you had to have a completely new edition before you could upgrade, whereas the Microsoft people under Explorer had figured out how to work modularization which means that what you do is you have 10 different units, and for each particular unit, you have an input jack and an output jack, and it turns out you have to have the right input and the right output, but what goes on inside the box can change. So the way in which you upgrade it is you took the weakest module out, kept the connections going on both sides, and so instead of having to upgrade the whole system at once, you could have continuous improvements. That's a huge advantage, and you know it's an efficiency advantage which they're entitled to engage in, because Netscape, if it thought a little bit more deeply, uh, should have been able to do the same thing. So you had a lot of problems as to whether there was a wrong. Then you had to figure out the remedy. And the remedy that uh, Judge Kotarkatelli came up with was a disaster. Uh, she realized she couldn't break this company up. Uh, so what she wanted to do is to make sure that the way the company operated would not, in effect, interfere with the ability of other people to hook on to the Microsoft general operating system uh, at no prejudice to anybody else. And so what she did is she set up an intermediate committee that was to examine every improvement that was made in the Microsoft uh, hardware system to see whether or not it had some restrictive effect. Well, this is a system that it's easy to game, and that's just what IBM did. 
what it would do is it said, well, here are a thousand improvements that we'd like to make. Tell us whether or not your system is going to be able to accommodate them. And the trick was you send in a thousand, but you don't tell them which of the two you want to use. And so what they managed to do is to impose incredible costs on Microsoft by slowing up the operation. It was a straight kind of game. Uh, Kotarkatelli, as the judge, didn't see the dangers of this. It really hurt Microsoft. Essentially, what happened is its Explorer system was not improved in the way in which it go. And it's a different company today. and It's an extremely successful company. Uh, but Nadella, I guess is his name, the new CEO of this company, has made it into a cloud company. Um, so that it, essentially what they did is they reconstituted themselves from within. The antitrust law was only a handicap. And so you have to do this and look at the case and see now just what it is that the Justice Department wants. Uh, after it shows that there's a violation of aggressive dominance. And it's not clear that you can figure it out. So I will just give a couple of free suggestions. One is the first thing you want to do is instead of worrying about advertising and all these strategic behaviors, you want to ask yourself the simpler question. Is there something that Microsoft did which made it more difficult for somebody who had previously hooked onto the system to remain on the system? Because one of the real ways in which you can exclude people from these companies is you upgrade your system so that somebody else is now incompatible. And if you do it in a way which is extremely difficult for some of your successful competitors to meet, uh, then I think that you could have it. And the reason I like that one is you're stressing physical changes in these things. It's relatively easy to prove. And you don't have to answer head on the question that uh, Google's always posed. We get a lot of customers because we give a lot of good service. We give a lot of good services because our customers know that they can talk to anybody else on our particular system, and we're very reliable. And, you know, it's going to be very difficult to do that, very difficult to charge them with price gouging when they don't charge prices, very difficult to say, aha, the information that you share is really worth more to you than you're getting paid for it out of Google. Those are really hard cases to win. Uh, So I wanted to go basically take it down and dirty, and it's not even clear whether that's an antitrust suit or a breach of contract suit really doesn't matter as far as I'm concerned. What you want to do when you start with these companies is start small on the technical side. And when it comes to the selection on the privacy and the information that they publish in Dome Puzzle, there you just want to land on them with both feet. So um, you don't want to basically be the pro or anti-Google. You want to try to figure out what the proper relationship is uh, between the various kinds of government regulation on the one hand um, and the strength of those claims vis-a-vis Google and everybody else on the other. Final question for you. On top of all the legal issues in this Google case, there's a complicating variable, which is that it very well could end up being handed off from a Trump Justice Department to a Biden Justice Department. So, A, I wonder to what degree you think that could change the case. And B, regardless of who's bringing it, what do you think the most likely trajectory is here? Well, worst of all, I think if it goes to the Biden side, um, I don't think they're going to change much on the antitrust definition one way or another. Um, If you go back and you start looking at many of the antitrust pronouncements that came out of the Obama administration and started to move them forward into the uh, Trump administration, there wasn't a huge difference in the way in which they did it. There were a couple of cases where Trump got a bee in his bottom and started to go after people, which made no sense. But for the most part, if you think about antitrust policies and tell this case, there's more continuity than difference. Um, it could be that uh, you could see some changes if you get somebody like Tim Wu, with whom I've sparred on many occasions coming in there. 
Uh, he might go after that. Uh, my view is Tim sort of overplays his hands on those things. So as to give you one particular difficult, I think, with the thesis that he has shared by my NYU colleague, Scott Hempel, every time they look at an acquisition by Google and they say, oh, my God, this is such a powerful thing. If they had been independent, they would have been a rival. Uh, but there's a but-for story that is being missed here. If they had not been taken over, or would they have actually been able to flourish without the synergies of Google capital and Google expertise and Google cross-licensing and all the rest of that stuff? That's just not very, very clear. Uh, so what you want to do on that front is to change it so as to make it easier for people to have initial public offerings by getting rid of some of the absurd restrictions on how these things are conducted under the securities law. Uh, and that will essentially make it more likely that people will become free entrants rather than go and merge with that. And in general, I prefer that because remember, Google started off as a freestanding company. Facebook started off as a freestanding company. Both of them went public. Neither of them were acquired. And it would be nice to see more of that, but you really have to change the securities law. And then what's going to be the likely outcome? Well, the first thing, it's a long time, baby, for this case is going to be solved. It's going to take at least a year or two of discovery. Uh, in every antitrust case, there are numbers, enormous numbers of procedural motions about summary judgment, venue, um, joinder of parties, and God knows what else they could think of. But these guys are really good at what they do. And so this thing is going to kind of perpetually go. That was one of the difficulties with the Microsoft case. If you're constantly under a cloud of antitrust stuff, you have to divert energy so you're less effective at, at innovation. And so as I said, uh, the programs that I'm trying to do are relatively simple. Uh, they're targeted to particular practices. They're trying to encourage free entry in a number of different ways. And I think that that's likely to be better than uh, a big antitrust suit. Uh, the other stuff on the content thing, it's going to be political all the way through. And we know that when the Biden administration comes in, uh, the bias issues uh, that the conservatives want to raise will receive less than an ideal or sympathetic hearing. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.